today well, by scanning the good QR morning. code. Uh, we want to welcome you today to K-First, and today we are continuing our series called Words to a Scattered Church as we're working our way through the book of James. And my name is Kevin. I'm the pastor of spiritual formation. And so it's always an honor to be here when Pastor Dave can't or whenever he asks me to speak. But we're going to be moving into the second half of chapter two as you look at the relationship between faith and our actions. And just want to remind you that we have our Church Center app, so if you ever want to follow along with a sermon, you can actually go right in the app, click Sermon Notes, and it's a great way to follow along um, anytime that you'd like to do that. But as we look into James chapter 2, the relationship between our actions and faith, it's a tricky one because we know, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, that we are saved by grace through, through faith. And which makes it pretty clear, right? By us simply believing that Jesus is who he says that he is, and by us consciously deciding to follow him, he forgives us of our wrongdoing, and he reminds us that we are created by him, and we can graciously, he welcomes us into his family as his child. By simply aligning ourselves with the way of Jesus, we are given hope not only for the future, but also for today. And it's not something that we have to earn or work for. It's something that God gives freely because he loves us. And love is the key to that. How many of you here are thankful that that is the truth for us? Awesome. Now, at the same time, though, as great and wonderful as that sounds, how many of you have also felt unworthy of God's love? Maybe you feel inadequate because there's an insecurity you have about yourself where you compare yourself to someone else. You don't, just, you don't really measure up to that other person. Or perhaps there's just that one habit that you can't kick that you know isn't the most honoring to God, not the healthiest thing for you. Or maybe your anger gets the best of you and you say or do things that you know aren't Christ-like. Or here's a big one. You know you should spend time with God, but whenever you start to get into the habit or the rhythm— after a day or two, you just, you lose all momentum and you fall back to the place where you can't spend time with him. And it's in these different situations, maybe even a combination of a few, that despite what we know is true, we find ourselves feeling like we aren't deserving or that we aren't worthy of God's love, his forgiveness, and his grace. Can anyone relate to that? I know that I can. For many of us, there's a dichotomy between what we know to be true and the emotions that rise up within us when we feel like we don't measure up to God's standards. I think back to when I was a kid, and as a kid, I was a big reader. I really enjoyed going to the library, getting a big stack of books. Call me a nerd. I'm proud of it. It got me here, so it can't be all bad, right? And I wish I could kind of read like I did when I was a kid. For some reason, college kind of messed that up because when you're forced to read, you know, you just you don't enjoy it as much. But I do still enjoy reading. Um, I do kind of feel like, if, is it, does anyone here remember the old Pizza Hut book it days? Oh, lots of hands. All right. I feel like we need to bring that back, but for adults, you know? Like, if you forced me to read a collection of books, I would do that for free pizza. So we need to bring that back. And I think my wife would appreciate it, too, because I have a stack of books that I haven't read. And then I order more books. I have a problem. And so she wants to figure out, you know, what do we do with all these books? Why aren't you actually reading them? But anyways, enough confession time. Back to Kid Kevin. Um, 
I'd read anything, mystery, thriller, sports, literary, classics, you name it, I'd read it. And one book series that I got into, as any good, you know, late 90s, early 2000s Christian kid would, was the Left Behind for Kids series. Now, if you don't know what that is, you're lucky. I'm kidding. Also not kidding at the same time. But it was a series of fiction books that was basically written on what the world would look like if you missed the rapture from the worldview of a dispensational, pre-chib, pre-millennial kind of worldview of the end times. And the book series, it followed a collection of people who either faked their faith or who did not live for God during their lifetime. And both groups of these people, they missed the rapture, and thankfully they decided to choose to follow Jesus and live for him during that time. But as you probably can guess, the tribulation is a wild, scary, and unpredictable time, especially for Christians in this book series. And so as a kid raised in church who believed in Jesus from a young age, who followed Christ as best as a kid could, I remember one night trying to go to bed after reading that book. And that, that, that fear rose up inside me. And if you like the book series, I'm not bashing it. It's, it's, a, it's interesting. It's a page turner. But as a kid, I remember sitting in bed wondering, what if I didn't say the sinner's prayer right? What if I don't actually love Jesus as, as best as I can? What if, what if I miss when Jesus comes back and I find myself laying in bed as a, you know, like elementary age kid crying my tears, my eyes out, and thankfully one of my parents happened to probably hear me crying and they came inside and they sat down next to me and said, Kevin, it's okay. You're okay. God loves you. You love God. God doesn't give us fear. He gives us joy. And you can have confidence that you are his child. But I still remember that moment to this day. And thankfully as adults, you know, we're able to comprehend things a little bit better than I could as a kid. But if we're being honest, often we have that same fear to maybe a different kind of degree. And here's a tricky thing that I hope to make clear this morning, is that salvation, yes, it's not gained by our actions, but our actions are still very crucial for our faith because our faith is affirmed by our actions. And another way to say it would be our actions are a reaction to the presence of God in our lives. And so we're going to read James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26 this morning. Actually, we're going to kind of walk through it slowly. Um, and I don't want to read through all of it at once because I want to break down the, each individual part because James is, is he's cleverly constructing an argument to help communicate this idea of how our faith and actions work together. In James's letter, he's bringing together a variety of practical ideas for a reason and a purpose. As an epistle, which means it was a letter written by an apostle, who's James in this moment, to a church or a group of churches. And he's writing to these churches, once again, for a reason. And James's writing, it seems to be more general. In this case, he's probably writing not just to one church, but to anyone that will get this letter, because he wants to encourage lots of people. It's a lot of wisdom. And so James, though, he does use a lot of language that makes it seem like he knows there's going to be some Jewish listeners, Jewish readers, to what his letter is saying. And these Jewish believers, as Pastor Dave mentioned in week one, they have been dispersed, they've been scattered, they're away from their home. Pastor Dave, you know, like I said, taught this week one, if you want to learn more, go back to that week. But because of this, they find themselves impoverished, impressed, 
oppressed as they try to find their footing in this new area that they find themselves. And so James, he's encouraging these believers to understand what it truly means to have faith, a faith that is genuine and authentic, one that won't waver when times are tough, one that will also demonstrate the way of Jesus in their new communities, and that isn't dependent on where they live. And so I want to read verses 14 through 17 first. And so let's go ahead and read that together. It says this, What good is it, dear brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith but don't show it by your actions? Can that kind of faith save anyone? Suppose you see a brother or a sister who has no food or clothing and you say, Goodbye, have a good day, stay warm, eat well. But then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? The last verse 17. So you see, faith by itself isn't enough unless it produces good deeds. It is dead and useless. Now this faith and deeds argument, or faith and works, or faith and action, is common within the New Testament because in the New Testament, those new churches, you often have two groups of people. You probably know where I'm going at with this. You have the Jews who have lived by a particular set of rules and traditions based on their Jewish heritage. And you have the Gentiles who, they have their own way of life, but it's connected through their culture. And so many early churches would often have some tension between these two groups coming together because they are bringing their past experiences and beliefs into this new community of faith. It's why in Paul's letters, you often see him speaking to both the Jews and the Gentiles. And to the Jews, he often encourages them to say, hey, yes, you are Jewish. Yes, you have your traditions. You can follow those, but don't impose those on these new Gentile Christians who are coming into this new faith of Christianity. And to the Gentiles, he often says, hey, don't live by the standards of your old life, but by the standards of this new Christian ethic that we hold in this new community of faith, which is to be like Jesus. And so over the years, people have studied Scripture, and they would often observe a disconnect between faith and action, specifically in the works of Paul, who very frequently talks about how faith is by grace and grace alone. But then you come to this passage here, and you see James kind of say something to the contrary to that. So what is actually going on here? What we often miss is that while they're using similar language, they're describing different things. When Paul speaks of works, he's speaking of work of law, of the Jewish law. In other words, obeying commandments found in the Torah or the Jewish law, such as circumcision, observing dietary laws, strict Sabbath rules, following those things. Where James, on the other hand, he's using the word works to describe deeds of Christ-like living that are expected of every Christ follower. It's what we see in Galatians 5 when Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit. If you're a follower of Christ, we all should have love, joy, peace, patience, etc. because the Holy Spirit resides in us. And so in this passage, James, he's really not even concerned with the law. He's writing generally to any Christian who may get a chance to read his letter, and he's concerned about what it means to have genuine faith in Christ. Now remember, many of the people that he's writing to, they're scattered. Life is tough. Their concerns are probably day-to-day -day livelihood. So James wants to encourage them to understand what it looks like to follow Jesus when your life isn't the way that you hoped it would be. 
It may not be wealthy. It may not be in your homeland. It may not have everything that you need, but you can still have faith. It can still make an impact in your community. So James introduces his idea with the illustration of what genuine faith looks like in verse 15 by, taking a, by giving the example of, what if your brother or your sister was hungry? What if they didn't have food? Faith would cause you to help them. Now, the reason why James is using this illustration is it's more than just an example. It's more than just a, an illustration. Because when these readers... When they hear about a brother or a sister in need, they probably picture a face. They picture a name. They might think back to a time when a family helped them out or didn't help them out. You see how practical James is writing. He's, he's stepping into their situation and he's saying, you know what this is like. This is what faith causes you to do. And so he says, hey, good faith, genuine faith, it steps beyond and it helps those in need. It causes us to see others in a different way. It causes us to live a life, our lives differently. It causes us to change how we view those around us. And it makes me think of the time when you're checking out at the grocery store or you're at the restaurant, you know, cashing out, and they ask you, hey, do you want to run out for charity? And for most of us, we probably have an immediate response to options. Either you say no, because what is 25 cents really going to do? Or I don't even know what I'm giving to, so why would I give my money to this charity? Or you might be a yes person that goes, if I don't say yes, I'm going to look like a horrible person because it's like 10 cents. How can I say no to that? He changes how we view life and those who are around us. We develop greater love, empathy, compassion for all people, whether they're like us or not, whether we agree with them or not. We recognize the common ground that we as a person created in God's image, we have that common ground and we see that in all people, even if they don't see that in themselves. You see, we cannot fake the work of the Holy Spirit because we as humans, we are finite. Only God is infinite. We can't recreate the work of the divine in our lives. That's the beautiful thing about Christianity. And it's the reason why God's kingdom is the only kingdom to withstand the test of time, because humans can't build it. Only God can build it. Number three, faith fuels the church. It's why I don't worry when culture changes, even when it changes beyond my comfort, even when I don't like it, because Christ, he remains constant. When life feels uncertain, when society seems hopeless, that's when people turn to the one who is constant and full of hope. You might disagree with me, and that's totally okay. But what I believe our world needs right now isn't a church that's ready to fight, but a church that's ready to stand with open arms and banish the wounds of those who are hurting in our world because society is fighting itself left and right. And that's not a political pun. It just happened. But our opportunity is to be the only community that truly loves, that truly cares, that empathizes, that offers peace. Where else do you see that in the world? You don't, but in the church. Ephesians 6 says we don't fight against flesh and blood, which means we don't fight people. We fight against the principalities and powers that are fighting people already. One of the biggest mistakes that I believe the church makes 
is when we get dragged into the fight of our culture. And once again, it's easy for us to reflect culture. But as a church, we want to reflect God's kingdom. That's what the world is longing for. The hope of Christ that was observed through his church, being like him, following his kingdom principles. So what does Portage and Kalamazoo need from K-First? It needs us to demonstrate our faith by acting in a way that reflects God's kingdom. That's why our mission statement is being with Jesus to become like Jesus because our city needs to see more Jesus. And that's what happens when God's people, when us, when we begin to live out our faith at home, at work, in the grocery store, wherever you may find yourselves. The world is watching. They're looking for peace. They're looking for hope. Do we show that? The fourth thing I want you to see is that, once again, our actions are a reaction to God's presence in our lives. And if you want to know how deep your relationship with Jesus is, just look at your life. Does it reflect Christ? Doesn't mean it to be perfect. I'm not perfect by any means. But are you loving? Are you kind? Are you patient? Are you a person of peace and joy? And if not, thankfully, we can cultivate that by creating space to be with Jesus. And here's the good news. As I said before, we can't fake genuine faith. So time spent with God isn't a checklist. It's not how long can I pray, how many chapters can I read in the Bible this week. It's are you inviting God into your daily life? Are you aware of his presence wherever you may be? You see, Western Christianity has made devotions or time spent with God too guilt-driven because we spend time with God in order to get something back. And if we don't get something back from God, then we're not doing enough or we're not doing it right. But the truth is, if your devotional life is driven by guilt, then you're doing it wrong because we don't have to earn his love. We have his love. We just have to become more aware that we have his love. So when we spend time with God, we do it because we want to actually be with him, not to get something from him, although you will get something from him if you're being with him. And so we do it because we want to, and that is when, when, our, when our faith grows. You know, we don't worship to get something from God. He's not up in heaven saying, worship louder, worship harder, then I'll answer your prayers. It's not like at the, at the uh, you know, if you go to like a sports stadium and they have that thing on the screen that says louder, and they like try to get you to, you know, shout louder. God's not doing that to us. We treat God like a vending machine. If I put enough in, then I'll get something good back. No, he's given us everything that we need and more. We worship because we adore him, and we want to let him know how much he means to us. We pray because we want to have a relationship with him. We read scripture because we want to learn more about him. And if you think I'm wrong with the vending machine idea, compare it to the American dream, which says, the harder I work, the more I'll earn. The more I do, the more I'll get. You see, we've been deceived by our culture. And the American dream don't, isn't necessarily wrong, but the American dream isn't the kingdom of God. But we let our culture influence our faith more than we let faith influence our culture. And so once again, our actions are a reaction to God's presence in our lives. You want to 
Back up your faith with action. Don't focus on doing more. Focus on just simply being with him because that will inevitably change how you live your life. Number five is legalism and love cannot coexist because in a pursuit for genuine faith that is demonstrated through actions, it's very easy for us to become legalistic with it. It's a trait found in the 19th century holiness movement, which if you're not familiar with that, it basically was a movement in the 19th century that was very focused on the idea of sanctification after conversion. Or in other words, basically, once you choose to follow Jesus, how do you live in a way that is holy, that reflects God, to show that he's working in your life? Actually, a lot of Pentecostal denominations, ours included, the Assemblies of God, came out of the holiness movement. And the intentions of that movement, once again, they were very good. We should be more like Jesus. We should be careful with what we say, what we think, what we do. How off, or however, there also were some things that were taken a little bit too far because over time the focus on being like Jesus became switched with looking less like culture. Some of our more seasoned individuals in the room might remember a time where you didn't go to the movie theater, where you couldn't play card games, because those were things that the world did. In fact, our, our fellowship for a long time, and maybe even in some places, were against dancing, unless it was in the context of worship, because it looked like the world. Now, once again, it's not bad to be careful with how we live, what we do, what we say. We should reflect God. The intentions behind the holiness movement, they're pure, they're good. However, it can get out of hand pretty quickly. And so legalism and love, it can't coexist. So as, as we pursue Christ and we begin to live more like him, we must ensure that what's driving us, what's motivating us, is driven out of love. That the standards we hold ourselves to are based out of our love for Christ. That when we encourage others to examine their lives, to maybe correct something about them, that we do it out of love for them, and that that love reflects the heart of Christ. Charles Mitten is a theologian, and he writes, it is a good thing to possess accurate theology, but it is unsatisfactory unless that good theology possesses us. In other words, it's good to know about God. It's good to have good understanding, but if that understanding doesn't change us, we're missing the point. So we don't act out of a legalistic heart to be right, but we act out of our love for Christ. If Gabe, if you're the one coming up here, you can come on up here, or whoever else it is. But where do we go from here? Where do we go from here with this passage? I want to give you three quick next steps. And number one is that we should start with self-examination. And that simply means taking some time to evaluate your life. Maybe it's looking over the past day, the past week, the past month, and asking, did I reflect Christ? Is my faith, is it backed by action? Have there been some moments where maybe I didn't reflect Christ? Were there moments where I did a good job of reflecting Christ and just simply spending some time to consider how am I as a follower of God's kingdom? Is the message of the gospel impacting how I live? And then number two, once you spend some time examining yourself, the second thing is that we, can, we confront it through confession. And confession is twofold. Number one is we confess the areas in our life that we need to grow. 
and we can also repent of the things that we've done wrong. Because one of the ways that we can actually grow is by acknowledging, hey, I'm not perfect. And hey, I'm sorry that I'm not perfect, but I'm going to do better. And so number, the second part to confession is that not only do we confess our, our failures, but we also we confess our desire to change. We don't beat ourselves up. We say, no, yes, I messed up, but God, I'm committing to changing, to being more like you. In fact, it might even be saying, who I was last week is not who I am. But we're not all perfect. We make those mistakes. We have to remind ourselves of who we are. Number three is we commit ourselves to communion and not bread and, bread and juice, but consistent communion with God, that we're spending time with Him so that we can become more like Him. Once again, not out of, what can I get out of this, but I wanna just simply be with the Father. And the second part of communion is not just communion with God, but communion with other believers, other Christians, Christ followers who can encourage you, build you up, and you do likewise. Because sometimes it's really helpful for someone to look at you and say, I know you feel like a failure, but I've been there too and it's not that big of a deal. Or if there's a genuine area that you need to grow, they can walk alongside you to encourage you, help you, and you do likewise. That's why there's a church, because we need each other. And at the same time, if you're here and you're not following Christ, and you're wondering, what's my next step? Well, the steps are honestly quite the same. Spend some time in prayer, talking to God and, and examining your life. How can you grow? What are the areas in your life that need to change? But then number two, it's confessing those things to God, confessing the areas in your life that need to change, saying sorry, but then confessing that you are going to live for Him. And then once you've done that, it's basically, this, it's basically the choice of, I'm sorry, I'm living for you, but now I'm actually going to do it. I'm going to spend time with God. I'm going to pray. I'm going to read scripture. I'm going to get into church. I'm going to have friends around me that build me up. And so what I want to do to close the message today is by praying a prayer together. And this prayer is actually developed um, by a guy named Ignatius of Loyola. He's a, you know, a church father from long ago. Some people call him a saint. Um, but basically, he kind of developed a strategy for self-examination. And if you want to learn more about that, you can actually Google it. And there's some cool techniques of things that he kind of did long ago. But he actually wrote a prayer called the Surrender Prayer. And I think it's profoundly and greatly applicable to kind of conclude this message today, to align our hearts in unity and say, God, I want my actions to re reflect my faith, but it starts by surrendering myself to him. And so I think we have it up on the screen. And so if you'd like to pray it with me, I'd encourage you to do that. Or you can just kind of sit and listen. But I want to pray this together. Take, Lord, and receive all my liberty, my memory, my understanding, and my entire will. All I have and call my own, you have given all to me. And to you, Lord, I return it. Everything is yours. Do with it what you will. Give me only your love and grace. That is enough for me. Amen. Amen.